Welcome back to the Afros and Knives podcast, the interview series that elevates the stories and profiles of Black women working in food and beverage, hospitality, food justice, food science, and food media. I am your host, Tiffany Rozier, and my conversation is with Nina Williams Mbang, the niece of culinary legend chef Edna Lewis. And we talk about their family history, her connection with her Aunt Edna, and the legacy that Chef Lewis left behind with all of us. While 2020 has been challenging, which sounds like an understatement, a few trends have made me hopeful. One of them is the return to home cooking. The pandemic changed how we eat and how we share meals. So as we begin to turn the corner into fall and winter, into the holidays and giving season, cookbooks should be on the top of everybody's list. One of the gifts that this year has given us is the release of Chef Bryant Terry's book, Vegetable Kingdom. In Vegetable Kingdom, Chef Terry breaks down the fundamentals of plant-based cooking. This is his fifth cookbook and it offers recipes that put vegetables front and center. It also offers a list of tools that you will need that will help you during your process. One of the dopest playlists I have ever seen on this side of Spotify is also in this book. And I'm talking about Stevie Wonder, Lil Wayne, Miles Davis, Outkast, Sarah Vaughn, Janelle Monet. I am a huge, huge advocate for playing music while I cook, while I prep, while I eat. And so this soundtrack was really incredible. It's super thoughtful, really well curated. I mean, when was the last time you got a cookbook that offered a soundtrack? Vegetable Kingdom is available anywhere books are sold and the playlist is available on Spotify. So I suggest you just hurry on over there, hit it up. And then while you're over there, Afros and Knives has a Spotify for the, uh, the book club. Go ahead and grab that too. Thank you to the Afros and Knives patrons for your support. None of this would be possible without you. To become a patron, you want to visit patreon.com backslash Afros and Knives. If you love this podcast and you want to continue to support it and see it grow, be sure to follow, subscribe, share, and comment. Believe me, the comments, the follows, the sharing, when you hit that subscribe button, all of that makes a huge difference. It tells me that, you know, I'm on the right track. I'm interviewing the right guest and we're talking about the right stuff. I'll stop talking and we can just go ahead and get into this interview. Good afternoon. My name is Nina Williams Mbang and I am the niece of Chef Edna Lewis. Her baby sister was my mom and my mom was a single parent and Aunt Edna and her husband when he was alive really raised me and influenced so much of my life. And I miss her terribly. Oh my God, I cannot tell you how much I miss her. And I cannot tell you how thrilled I am that folks are interested in her work and her life. She would be amazed. So it's really been an honor to be able to do this. Originally, I got involved with Anna. And of course, I live with them, my mom and Anna Edna. What happened? You know, Anna Edna's the chef, but for me, she's also the aunt, my mom's older sister. When their mother died, Anna Edna was in New York and, she, and my mom was about 12 or 13. And she brought my mom to New York with her and put my mom in high school, enrolled her in the Art Students League, and just really raised her for the rest of her life. So they were always close, and then I was always close, of course. My mom and I were living up in the Bronx, in the South Bronx, in 1970, I think, when it was really bad, and my mom got sick, she got pneumonia, you know, the whole nine yards. The incinerator in the building always filled the apartment up with smoke, so she got pneumonia. And her other sister, Ruth, took my mom to Philadelphia with her and put her in the hospital there. Well, Aunt Edna and her husband were living in Harlem, and they immediately left that apartment in Harlem, moved us across the street, and moved in with me while my mom was in Philly for about a year, recuperating. She really had a collapsed lung and just really bad. We were living together, all of us together, and Aunt Edna had written the Edna Lewis cookbook, and she went to write a second cookbook on life in Virginia. And I just happened to take a typing class, get a brand new typewriter, if anybody knows what that is anymore. And I've said this before, and Edna was writing up these recipes and the memories of growing up in Freetown, but her handwriting was so horrible. So she enlisted me to actually type the manuscript and edit it. And that's how I got involved in helping her and really learning so much, just reading what she wrote and talking to her about living in Freetown, Virginia. Now I live in Colorado 
and I'm married and I have two daughters and I work for a nonprofit, the National Conference of State Legislatures, and I work on child welfare policy. And I really think Ann Edna, for me, really influenced my interest in policy and being involved in the nonprofit world and really looking at systemic issues that people in our country and around the world face. And I do credit Ann Edna because she was extremely politically astute and involved in addition to the cooking and preserving the memories of the people of Freetown, who, as you know, were former slaves who founded their own town and their own lifestyle. They were one of quite a few communities that just did that so beautifully. That's really what kind of piqued my interest about her is that all her cookbooks are available to most of the world. And most people know her work from behind a stove or in a kitchen or leading a kitchen. And the thing that I find that a lot of Black women are now involved in and finding themselves attracted to is the work of food justice and food advocacy and getting into kind of the politics of food. And when I was reading up on a little bit more, because the bios are always kind of written in the same way and they have the same historical facts and context. And I was more interested in finding out the other part of that world. I, I always think that the world of food is so vast and a big part of the work that that we do is preservation and making sure that there are adequate resources and things like that. So what did her political world look like or her political life? And what were the things that she was most passionate about outside of the kitchen? Oh, wow. Well, I was very, very young, but I do remember when she and her husband were living in Harlem, of course, I'd go stay with her quite a bit. My mom worked two, three jobs and I was always staying with Aunt Edna or doing something with her. She was involved in politics. I, you know, there, there's a backstory. Her husband was involved in the Communist Party, and there was that whole story. I was really too young to remember or know much about that. But she, I knew that she followed the news voraciously. Her and my mom and sisters, they always talked about what was going on. And this is during the back end of the Civil Rights Movement. This was during the Vietnam War era, the student protests in the colleges. My whole family, they've always followed everything like that really, really closely. And so I knew that Aunt Edna was aware of all that going on and very involved in it. And when she was younger, before my time, she'd certainly been heavily involved in those kinds of things. What probably most influenced me was when I was in high school, she was a docent, a paid volunteer or a teaching assistant at the American Museum of Natural History in Manhattan in the African Hall. So she was trained to learn about African history of you know African nations and everything that surrounded that to give lectures and talks to the public that came through. And my mom sent me to a private school in Manhattan, so it was near the museum. So after school, I would often go over there and hang out with her a couple hours, and we'd go home together back up to the Bronx. So just seeing her give these lectures, she wore African clothing that people gave her. She was an older woman then, and she met a lot of African students that were visiting the Museum of Natural History. They were homesick. They would come there, they'd go through the African Hall, and of course they would meet my Aunt Edna, and they loved her. They would adopt her as their grandma or their mother from away from home. And just hearing their conversations and seeing my aunt's pride in her African heritage and watching her research everything, the history of slavery, how that came about you know, in the Americas, the African continent, the great civilizations that came out of Africa, and just hearing all that and seeing my aunt proudly where she was wearing a gaily and these beautiful clothing that people would bring her from Nigeria, from Ghana, and they would teach her how to wrap her head and how to really put all this clothing together. And she would wear that so proudly. And then she was really tall, taller than me, <laughs> and very just regal. Her hair had been gray for a long time. I have a picture of me at less than one year old, and my, my aunt's hair was out, and it was mixed gray, salt and pepper, even then. And she wore back in that bun and these big earrings. And she just, her and my mom and all of her sisters were just the world to me. But to see this really proud black woman at her age, you know, that book, her husband died. He was older than her. He's about 20 years older than her. And he died, I believe, the year before The Taste of Country Cooking was published. So sort of after that, and we were all living together and we stayed in that apartment in the Bronx until 1982, till I graduated college. Yeah. So the taste of country cooking and then everything just soared. And she was, I believe, 60. So she's born 1916. You all do the math. And 1976, <laughs> the book was published 
and she and really my mom i have an aunt we, there's one remaining sibling who's 96 and was still farming until a few years ago still driving she's still raising chickens and quail but to me and in my mind here's a woman who's 60 years old and her life has gone in a completely new direction completely new at her age and she wasn't slowing down she was speeding up in my mind i remember when she was in manhattan she was at different restaurants but at gage and Tallner, I remember she was in her 70s and she started out at 7 a.m. She'd be there till 9, 10, 11 p.m. at night. She would just run circles around the other young chefs and cooks there. It was just incredible. So I've always had her as a mentor that your age does not matter. All that talent that she had, all the memory that she had of Freetown, she had all that and was able to continue to express that or begin expressing that after all the other incredible things that she did before that. To me, it's still amazing and it's hopeful. And I try to tell all my friends, I said, oh no, and Edna just started at 60. You don't even worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, it is not too late. You are on time. You are just fine. <laughs> Do you remember how she met her husband? No, that I don't know. I mean, my aunt would probably know. I, I don't remember. I had, uh, yeah, in New York, that story I did not hear. I know he worked on a ship. He was a ship steward or chef or something like that. And how many sisters did she have? Let's see, it was six of them, not six sisters, but siblings that survived all together. So it was Naomi, it's my mom, Edna, Jenny, Ruth, and then George and Lou. So there were two brothers and four girls. So she had three sisters and two brothers. From the group, are almost all of them still alive or? Only Aunt Ruth. Only Aunt Ruth. My mom was the baby. Yeah, my mom was the baby. So Aunt Ruth is 96. Is that right? She turned 96 in February. She's a leap year baby. So she's either 24 or 96. (laughs) She's incredible. She would make an incredible person to talk to. Well, the incredible thing like it is that both their parents died relatively young. So we always said they all outlived their parents. Their dad died in his 40s. My mom was about six months old. He had congenital. And mom died of colon cancer, which was about 46, I believe. And the incredible thing following that line, and Edna learned how to cook really from her grandparents, who were the former slaves. They happened to live into their 90s. And Aunt Edna was about 10 or 12, probably, when they passed on. And prior to that, they taught her how to cook. So it's really interesting how right out of slavery, folks were living into their mid-90s. Yeah. I noticed that after emancipation, the lifespan was a lot longer than you would expect. It was just like, ooh, people are living into their 90s and 100s at this point. The folks in my family, my grandmother is in her 90s now. My mom's mom, she had kind of like the same timeline. Her parents died when she was very young. Her father was born in Macon, Georgia. She was sent to Jacksonville. And it's funny because learning about some of the towns where it was primarily Black residents at this point and in remembering my grandmother's time timeline and like where she moved to. I'm wondering if she had just missed some of that action in Jacksonville or if she remembered any of it. That's just incredible. Now, when your aunt moved from, she moved from Georgia to New York and then back to Georgia, or how did she kind of circulate back? She did the cookbook. She was in New York City. She worked at as the head chef at Gage and Tallner or in Brooklyn for a couple of years. Then she was invited to be executive chef at different restaurants in the South. So I believe first she went to North Carolina to a place called Farrington Place. Then she was in South Carolina. Oh, I'm going to forget the name of the restaurant. Still there. It's a former plantation. Both places were incredible. It's a former rice plantation. Absolutely beautiful. Incredible. And I think that some of the menu still reflects her cooking and her food there. And I actually went there and stayed with her a week because the guy who owned it, his great, great someone was one of the original owners. And when I went there to visit her, Maybe just a couple of years before, there were the descendants of the slaves were still working on that farm. It became a rice farm, even almost into Aunt Edna's day, which was amazing. And it was just, it was an amazing place. They had a rice mill. She lived in there and they had these beautiful lakes. The main building had burned down when the northern troops came through. But I remember Aunt Edna said she would often go walk in the morning because it was so beautiful. And, you know, the great trees and the Spanish moss hanging down. And she would feel a sense of her ancestors there watching her, you know, looking at her, seeing what she was doing. She felt their presence very keenly and they were very real to her. So I think that she always carried with her 
in her heart and in her memory, the people of Freetown and what she'd seen and what she learned from them about they, what they'd been through in slavery. And she would have been a child, you know, sitting at their feet, watching and listening and watching the community, all the things that you see in the Taste of Country cooking in the cookbook that she remembered in such detail. And I think the pride that she felt that her grandfather, who was a former slave, built a two-story house, hired a woman from Ohio to come and teach the black children in his living room because there were no schools for the children. They formed the church there. That memory of the cooking and the lifestyle and people pulling themselves together and creating their society out of absolute devastation, I think she always took with her and took very seriously and felt the presence of what they call the old folks. And I'm the old folks now. Lord help. (laughs) (laughs) Did she ever make a trip to the continent at all? Or was she able to do that? No, she was never able to go to Africa. She did one trip to Italy, but not to Africa. I know. Her wish was to have gone. Oh, she loved Africa. She read all the history books. And oh, my God, it was just really interesting. And then she passed them on to me. And I just developed such an interest and such a love. Of, of the continent. I haven't been there myself. And my husband is African, Senegalese, and we've got two daughters, but we plan to go next year. So we'll get to go. We'll go in and add honor. Oh, good. I know I've made my own plans and me and my sister and my cousin have talked at length about like relocating to Ghana, considering what the state of the United States is right now. We're like, you know, um, there are other options. So <laughs> we've been definitely talking about that. All the information she was able to glean from her parents and put into, you know, and write down so that we would have that information. Were you able to get some of that from her like firsthand and like conversation or did you really learn about it the way the rest of us had? Well, firsthand conversation and the actual recipes that she was writing out went to a lot more detail. My mom sent me to the farm to the other sister, Ruth, who stayed in Jenny, rather, who stayed in Virginia every summer until I was like 13. So I was in Virginia, a few miles from Freetown, every summer of my life until I was like 13 years old. And in Edna, especially after the, well, while she was writing for the Taste of Country Cooking, testing the recipes, she would often go visit her sister, Jenny, and her brother, Lou, who were both farmers, and test recipes and ask questions and talk about old folks. They would always talk about just like it just happened yesterday, their mother, their father, their grandparents, and what that was like and how things were cooked. You know, in the summer, I was just trailing along behind them. So Freetown is still there. I mean, the buildings are down, but my uncle, the other brother, kept cattle there, and we'd go there and pick blackberries in the summertime. Oh, my God, it would be hot, and I'd be behind her and on Jen, and they'd be talking and laughing and giggling, and I just loved it, and I'd just walk behind them just collecting these blackberries, which we'd take home and they'd make it to blackberry cobbler and oh, most delicious food. But I would hear their stories then and around the dinner table and going to church. And when they'd all get together, they would talk about things that had happened and my mom would talk about it. So both firsthand overhearing them talk about what it was like and seeing some of it because I'm 61. So on her sister's farm, on Jen's farm, when I was very young, we didn't have running water. So we had a well. So we drew water out of the well. We used the outhouse because it was not a bathroom in the house. They had electricity, but they used a cook stove. And it ended up testing a lot of the recipes on the cook stove. And they had a big fireplace. And then they were raising cattle and pigs and chickens. And some of it was still going on, not in Freetown. So I I could see firsthand Brother Lou coming by early in the morning. He'd milk his cows and he'd come by and he'd bring his sister Jenny, whose house I was at. He'd bring her a big pail of fresh milk and she'd have that and use some of it to make butter by hand and use the butter pumper thing. And some of it they'd save for pig slop or he'd come by back in the middle of the day and he'd have lunch with sister Jenny. You know, half the stuff was out of her garden and he'd bring a big basket of sweet potatoes he always came by with something to bring his sister and just to see that kind of love. And I, I could easily see what Freetown must have been like because they exhibited, you know, so much of it as a family amongst themselves. Did you have any cousins around? Were you the only one that was kind of sent, <laughs> sent oh, to yeah. Virginia? <laughs> I'm my mom's only child. I have a half brother and half sister from my dad's first marriage. My dad's from Bermuda. So sister uh, Ruth, she lived in Philadelphia and she also sent her kids. They went to school there. They lived full time with Aunt Ruth. So I did have three cousins. They were older than me. So they didn't pay me much, too much attention. Aunt Ruth lives with her daughter, Maddie. Douglas, I just talked to him. I talked to him every Sunday. Amelia is in Arizona. 
So those three kids were also raised there and probably Amelia's closer in age to me. So I spent more time with her. And then there were other cousins. So their mom, Daisy, raised the six kids, you know, she had two older boys, but she also raised two other cousins, Grace and Lottie, whose father was Daisy's husband's brother and their mother had died. So they all moved in and lived together. And Daisy selling turkeys. And it was just clarified to me that the house that they lived in and grew up in that was away from Freetown. She bought that from another great aunt who was African-American and paid her back over the years and did that raising turkeys and selling turkeys and shipping them out for years during the Depression. They were just absolutely amazing. So, yeah, so those cousins, Grace and Lottie, were cousins that were raised with them and were extremely close. They passed away, but were still close to their children and grandchildren. So there's tons of cousins that were there. I stayed at Aunt Jen's house, uh, probably mostly by myself, but they were enrolled in school there, and I only came in the summer. And I was very kind of quiet and shy, but it was incredible. I just feel so blessed to have been there and to have you know spent so much time with them and, and just have been a witness to that. I grew up outside of Philadelphia and South Jersey, and my mom lives in Arizona with my brothers. Every interview I do, I always find these really interesting connections. It's just like, oh. You know, Aunt Edna, and I remember going there, her and her husband, before she had, she had a restaurant in Harlem for about a year. Prior to that, she and her husband ran a pheasant farm in South Jersey, Vineland. Oh, wow. I think New Jersey. Fine. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, that is, <laughs> I have mean, family members who still live there. <laughs> I could totally have remembered that wrong, and I better check that with Aunt Ruth. Now, Aunt Ruth in 96 remembers everything. Any questions I have, I have to run it by her. I was going to say, between your Aunt Edna and her, they have these super sharp memories to like write a cookbook after 60 and just kind of ramp up your life. And most of her work was about telling the history and giving people information. Most people, when their memories are on the decline, those ladies were sharp as a tack. I mean, in your own life, the work you do now, what connections are you making with your aunt's work to your own work? Well, some of it, I talked about Aunt Edna just sort of starting at 60 and just going up. And that, that's always an inspiration to me because I'm the organization I'm at, the National Conference of State Legislatures, I'll be there, I think it's 25 years in October. When I start thinking about that and my age, and I go, well, no, you know, my family, they just keep going. <laughs> Their minds didn't fade. I mean, Aunt Edna's did a little bit toward the end. So that is an inspiration period that you can keep coming up with new ideas and get really excited about what you're doing you know, really be able to continue to contribute in a way. It's just really great to have had that influence from her. I think just politically, I mean, when I went to college, I've been living here in Colorado since 1994, but prior to that, I worked for CARE, which is an overseas relief organization, relief and development organization. So I've been in, in college. I was very interested in international development. I majored in Latin American studies. I really was able to do that in New York. I worked for CARE for about eight years and really learned more about issues related to women's and children's health and poverty and these international issues and you know economic development of countries. I learned about that in my major Latin American studies because Latin America, the development of Latin America is so tied in with African slavery. And I mean, you know, the first slavery that the transatlantic slave trade began between Africa and South and Central America. And, you know, most Africans came to South and Central America and the Caribbean, many more so than actually came to the United States. So it was wonderful to learn all that history. And some of that passion, I think Aunt Edna sort of inflamed in me because she was working at the American Museum of Natural History in the African Hall, reading all of this and passing on to me. And we were having discussions about the transatlantic slave trade. And at the time, the person, there was a British historian, Basil Davidson, before we have had all these wonderful African-American historians, there was a British historian who really talked about what really happened and what African civilizations included Egypt and how great the West African kingdoms were. And there were great kingdoms in Mozambique. They traded with Japan and China and all that. And these were conversations I was having with Anne Edna, and she was reading Black Mother and passing it on to me, and we were talking about it. So she really influenced me to think about these issues, to you know, be really interested in international issues and where our people came from just really directly because she was reading and she was blending that with her cooking. One of her last things that she wanted to do before she passed, she had dreams of doing really a tome on 
African-American cooking and all of the roots of African-American cooking and really diving into that and writing just a real, you know, not an encyclopedia, but a complete book about a historical treatment and account of our food making and the contributions that we made to cooking here in the United States. Major, major contributions that continue to reverberate around the whole world. That was one of her dreams to do that. We talked about that a bit. It's incredible. Like, I love the fact that she, even right before passing, was already, she was still thinking about work that she could put out in the world. And it just tells you, like, you just keep going till you don't go anymore. <laughs> she did get, to, to, like, a bit of dementia, like, a couple of years before she passed. But, you know, she was 89. You know, she was just so active, you know, up until then. And she gave us so much. I mean, how much more could we have asked of a person? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> what was her education like? Did she ever like discuss wanting to go to a traditional college or what did that look like considering her parents were essentially the educators? That's right. Yeah. No, she didn't. We kind of joked about, I think she completed high school. We kind of joked about that. She didn't go to college and that her brother George was the first one in our immediate family. He was in World War II. So Lou and George, Lou, they wouldn't send two sons that were supporting the farm with no father to the war front at the time. So Lou stayed and farmed. Uncle George went to the front. He was on the, he was in Normandy on the beach during the invasion of Normandy. And on the GI Bill, he went to Hampton Institute and got a degree in botany. And then he got a master's in the study of insects. And he actually became a superintendent of Descanso Gardens, which is a very famous, beautiful public garden in Pasadena, California, which is incredible. And he worked there for many, many years, building it up from, you know, he started just as a person, just helping with the day-to-day activities of a garden that had kind of just opened. So she was very proud of Uncle George's accomplishments. My mom completed high school, I think really Uncle George, and then I completed college, and then my younger cousins have done so. So we talked about that. She was very proud of that, but she was also kind of proud of the fact that she didn't necessarily have higher education, but she still managed to be able to, she realized that she was making a mark on the world. But in her mind, that mark was bringing forth the memories and the work and the sacrifice of the people of Freetown and making, ensuring that people understood that and what a mark they made upon the world through their cooking and through their lifestyle. And you know that she did receive an honorary PhD from Johnson & Wales University in 1996. Oh, wow. So she was getting her PhD while I was getting my high school diploma. So Yes, she was given it. She did (laughs) not write, exactly. I hear you. I think her body of work definitely speaks to a level of scholarship and attention and application that definitely warrants a PhD. So for sure. And I was graduating from high school with honors English and honors chemistry. And that that was where that went. All right. (laughs) There's so many things that are named for her or in honor of her. Was she here to see most of that? She saw a lot of it. She would be amazed that she's gone and this is still going on. And she was the subject of a top chef and the New York Times. But when I went to one place, she received, I should look at her awards written up. She received an award from the, well, she was a Grand Dame by the Les Dames Dames de Escoffier International in Chicago. She went to that event. She got a James Beard Living Legend Award. She got the honorary PhD from Johnson & Wales in 1995. She won an award and I went to the ceremony and several other people went through and I think it was featured, wasn't it featured in Victoria Magazine? So she did go to quite a few award ceremonies where she was honored as being, you know, the top of her field, a lot of the James Beard stuff that she did. So she did understand that she got to participate in, you know, many awards ceremonies. She went to Italy with, uh, there was a gathering of other chefs. So she did really understand that. It was so funny because she was actually quite shy and she often would be around these people. You could hardly hear what she was saying. And everybody was leaning in real close because her voice could get real soft. <laughs> oh, I love it. Her 80th birthday was celebrated in Georgia at Bullock Hall. CNN was there. And I've got photos. I'm standing behind the CNN photographers taking pictures of her sitting on this great old porch. And she's got this African dress on that she made herself. She designed it. And she's holding some flowers, I think. And I've got pictures of that whole scene. 
Did you guys ever talk about or debrief after those moments? What was going on in her head? Like, what was her internal dialogue about a lot of that stuff? It's just very funny. There's a lot of laughter. I remember when she first started writing the cookbooks, we would always laugh about her getting fame, fortune, and glorification. And she said, well, the fortune hasn't come, but the fame and glorification are there. And we would <laughs> laugh about that a lot. She was very funny, her and my mom. So she talked about it in that way. They would always debrief. My mom was always the storyteller. You know, after church, after second Sunday in August, the big celebration, my mom would reenact everything. So yeah, they would they would debrief everything, usually over a glass of something. <laughs> Jack Daniel, a martini, something strong. <laughs> it's good to know she was a whiskey drinker. I mean, really. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Did the farm ever produce any kind of like alcohol or uh, moonshine or... I don't think so. I think she have wine recipe, but on Jen's husband, her sister Jenny, I remember drinking it. He made all the time. He made dandelion wine, peach wine, blackberry wine. And we would always have a little glass of that and help him make it. And I think it has a recipe for dandelion wine. So they had that kind of liquor that in cordials, that kind of stuff they were making. And I think there's a recipe in the taste of country cooking because I remember I would pick some of the, the dandelion flowers and I don't remember how to do it anymore. And the greens, you know, we cook the greens, but they make wine out of the dandelions. Wow. Okay. It was good. It was strong too. (laughs) (laughs) I lived in Nashville for five years and worked a lot with the farmer's market there. And so I knew a lot of the local farmers and Moscato, a lot of them grew Moscato grapes. And so we would have a, a hit of Moscato wine at the beginning of the summer. That was always really interesting. The fact that that's so synonymous with specifically Southern farming is that there's always a little bit of something over there. Somebody's always cooking up a little something. Right, Um, right, right. That's true. That's true. (laughs) You don't don't get it as much coming this way. You don't get it coming up the eastern seaboard, but definitely once you cross into like Maryland, keep heading south, you definitely see a lot more of that. Did you have a thought about, I guess, because at the time you started to see a bump in like kind of this idea of like the celebrity chef and food television and that kind of thing. Did she have a thought about where the conversation of food publicly was going? She was real pleased with the organic movement, the farm to table movement, which has taken off probably even more since she passed. She you know, had been friends with Alice Waters, who she was influenced greatly by her cooking and the direction that she was in. She was a big proponent, of course, of organic farming of the farmer's markets. And Edna did not want to use regular baking powder or baking soda. She felt it had it was too aluminum. It had too many chemicals in it. I don't think she would have touched a microwave oven. I pray that she can't see me from heaven using one. <laughs> <laughs> She's like, what are you doing? <laughs> she was very much a perfectionist about how the food should taste. She really believed in food being simple and, you know, true to itself. She did talk about that all the time. And she, you know, some of the fads she would have had something to say about. But she certainly felt, you know, taking your time and getting the best flavor out of food and the food being natural and organic and free of chemicals and pesticides. She was very much attuned to what their mother, they think, died. She had colon cancer, but she farmed, too, of course. And she was using, at the time, DDT powder as a fertilizer, using her hands to put it on the plants and the crops. So they think that's maybe why she had colon cancer. I I don't know, but certainly DDT is banned now. So that may have stuck in her mind as well, if that had anything to do with her mother's illness. But I think she would have been on board so, so much with organic farming and fresh food and really being a proponent of that. I don't know. You know, She tried to do a couple of sort of televised interviews, but she was so shy. She did have trouble with those, <laughs> with that kind of thing. And being in front of crowds of people, she would get a little bit nervous. But certainly the talk, the scholarship, this just amazing, all these incredible young people like yourself doing all the study and scholarship and the fact that there is a food, what do you call a genre in studies, and you can get a master's and a PhD and do all this historical research on food and equate it to, you know, the African-American experience. And I think we would be totally on board with that. And she would be at the forefront, believe me. (laughs) 
you know, it's the one way we are able to, we get so shortchanged in public school or even in private school. Even with rigorous study, you get shortchanged with history and we don't really have a connection. And food is our avenue because it's the one time you typically see all the members and generations of your family. And it's typically an event where food is at the center. I think that rigorous study that we've all jumped into is a big part of the reason for that. It's for us to find a connection to our ancestry and our history and who we are fills in a lot of those blanks for us. And it's like, okay, where am I from? Who are my people? And how do we, you know, and food is such a great expression of how people are and how people live. It's an easy door to some of the harder stuff. So you're just like, okay, well, we'll start here. Like, what was my grandmother's biscuit recipe? And then you kind of go from that point. And then you realize the things you know about yourself and your family and about the world, you usually learn because you were sitting in a kitchen while someone was preparing a meal, it does become kind of the central catalyst for people to reconnect to their roots. So now with all the things that have happened in the world in the last, I'd say, few weeks, I think COVID pandemics are a really interesting thing anyway. But And that's such a macro issue. You know, the micro issue within that is, of course, this current like civil unrest and and the uprisings across the world about you know police brutality and racial racial injustice. And then people, you know, I, I found the most interesting thing to happen is that like back to that conversation about history is that so many people are being reintroduced and relearning American history for what it actually is. And I think, a big, you know, because a big part of perpetuating this cycle that we've been in is the fact that most people historically have no idea where it came from, why we exist the way we do, why we live the way we do. And so I think people are being introduced to history in a way that they've never experienced before. Thinking back to your aunt and her experience in being sometimes, I'm guessing, the only brown or black face in the room in an industry that was that's heavily white male dominated, especially when you get into those levels of expertise and times, you know, I say time served in the industry. She's put in those places with those pantheons of cooking, but most of those faces are white and male. And so thinking about who she was and what her work was and the position she played, what do you think her opinion would be of what is happening right now? I mean, considering like, you know, she had parents who were emancipated. She lived through the civil rights movement and then some, and then the world seems to have gotten a little quieter over the last 20 years, but then get around 2015 and it starts to really ramp up again. You start to see a heck of a lot more. She would be marching with the young people. She'd been involved when she was younger with the events associated with the Scottsboro boys and trying to free them, the Scottsboro trials. Certainly, you know, they, she'd attended sit-ins and gone on marches as a young person. I don't remember a lot of detail about her talking about it, but I know that she did. So she would have been right on board. Her and her husband, they were always talking about, you know, the Vietnam War, she always called Vietnam, <laughs> and Watergate and all those things. She's always commented. She would have been so proud of the young people. She would have been elated to see young whites. And, and I was looking at something recently online, and it was a scene of a lunch counter scene during the civil rights movements when young people went and were trying to integrate the different restaurants and diners in the South. So there was a young black woman and two young white women with her at this counter trying to integrate it. And the people behind them were pouring flour and soda and all this garbage on them and cursing at them. And it struck me that I'm personally and just thrilled to see the diversity and the protests. And then I'm like, but let's not forget that many whites did go with us on those lunch counter sit-ins and on those bus rides to the South. Many lost their lives then. And of course, it seems to be much more now. And it's just really incredible to see that. And Aunt Edna would have been, if she were able to physically at 90-something, <laughs> she would have been marching. But trust me, she would have marched. She would have been just incensed that this is still happening to young black men, you know, the lynching that, you know, went on in the South. And that I remember my mother and probably Aunt Edna too talking about the fear that they faced because you never knew when you're husband, your uncle, your father, your brother left the house that morning, if he would come back, if you would ever see him again, because of something happening that they had no control over. And she would be heartbroken and incensed to see that our people are, you know, still dealing with this in 2020. I can't imagine how incredible it would be to go, okay, I had parents who were enslaved. Oh, grandparents, excuse me. They were freed. 
And that same terror, that same terror being with you all that time and keep seeing it. And you're like, now we have all of this technology in the world seems to have advanced so much. And yet (laughs) this string just will not break. It's the human heart that's very slow to change. (laughs) Exactly. I'm like, wow. Does she ever share any stories about any of those kind of challenges in a kitchen? Because I know, you know, she led a lot. So I wasn't. Well, she talked about certainly. You know, especially when she was younger, having to go in the back entrances of places that she was cooking at, whether it was a restaurant or someone's home, having to be very careful about what you said, how you approached and how you looked at people. There's one story of her and my mom. They were live in help in New York City, I believe, and this woman and her husband, and they were in the apartment or the house, and the wife was out. The man wanted them to come in with him and they were terrified. They just left and ran out of the place. Definitely going in the back of places, the colored entrance, having to deal with that kind of thing. And, you know, I tell people, you know, they talk about Aunt Edna, you know, she came to New York City, she catered for people. And I like to say, you know, Aunt Edna, she eventually became a caterer, but she was a cook. She was a domestic help. And she experienced all of the racism and the insults that all domestic help did and all the fear that they lived through and trying to scrape by and working for people that, I don't know, did not have your best interests at heart. Fortunately, she did become involved with people who recognized her talent and she started traveling in different circles. But she did start out, she was domestic help and experienced all that fear, all that racism, you know, all that hate. But still, she thrived and just that memory with her. And I believe that was the spirit of the people of Freetown that enabled her to survive through all that and not lose that memory, that fire, that drive, and turn it into something incredible that we can all benefit from. I feel like that's in our DNA for sure. I don't know any other group of people really that can be pressed into like a position of pain as frequently as we are and then produce these incredible things almost in response. It's like your inability to to break us to that point. When she got to New York, and of course, did she ever share a moment where she knew the corner had been turned for her? Someone hadn't recognized what she was doing and her talent and wanted to offer her a bigger opportunity? Did she ever speak about that opportunity that popped up in her life and was like, okay, I think we're going in a new direction here. I think this is about to be bigger than I had planned for. Mm -hmm. I can imagine working at Cafe Nicholson was the first place where she really made her mark because so many famous people came there and she was the chef there. Actors came in and political folks, Marlon Brando, Tennessee Williams, all these folks would come there for Edna's food and, you know, were talking with her. And I was not even born. I was born in 1959. So it was just really wonderful. She talked about that for many years. So I think that was one big crest for her. And then she did various things with her husband. You know, they had the pheasant farm. And then really, again, I think she did the Edna Lewis cookbook and then the taste of the Edna Lewis cookbook. She had been friends with a woman, Evangeline Peterson, who's, I think, the co-author of the Edna Lewis cookbook. And she cooked for her and they became friends. I remember for years I would tag along with Aunt Edna and she was cooking with her and they, the two of them would be talking and drinking something and their voices would get higher and higher. They were giggles would get. And I'm like, what on earth did they talk about? I was maybe, I don't know, 10 nine or 10, something like that. And Edna broke, fell on the snow and broke her ankle and was in Harlem Hospital. And Evangeline came to visit her and told her, Edna, you should write a book while you're recuperating. <laughs> a cookbook. So she wrote the Edna Lewis cookbook. And then it was after that that she wrote The Taste of Country Cooking. And I think with The Taste of Country Cooking, when that came out, I think that was the next crest or peak when the magazine started calling to interview her, she was in everything possible, Bon Appetit, the New York Times, and everything just kept blowing up from this cookbook. And, you know, her husband had passed. And then it's just like she just shot upward. And, you know, there were multiple interviews in the Times. They came to Bethel Baptist Church in Unionville and did a big two-page spread. So I think that was the, you know, the next. And she just kept going upward. And But, you know, by then she's getting her to 70s and 80s. Yeah. Did she have a sense of why those cookbooks resonated with people like that way? Because I mean, people produce, there's a lot of cookbooks in the world and a lot of good ones. And outside of the biographical context being really interesting and rich, personally, did she have a sense of why those books were received the way they were? 
I think she felt that it was the first time that number one, people were able to recognize that Southern cooking, African-American cooking was more than, and these were wonderful things themselves, but it was more than fried chicken and greasy greens that we had a huge, rich food history that was just incredible and incredibly delicious and refined. I think she thought the books did that. I think that she recognized that she was bringing to the minds and hearts of people how that community lived, how they raised their animals, how they treated each other, how they raised their food, how they formed and centered around this farm economy in the small very rural, tiny area. And I think she recognized that people hadn't realized that, hadn't seen that. This was sort of going on at the same time with the organic movement and the green market movement or the farmer's market movement. And I think that resonated. And I think her language, I mean, I look back at it now and I always remember the sweet-faced baby calf. And she'd have all these lists of everything they picked in the springtime and everything they grew. And I was like, at the end of the sentence, is too long. (laughs) You've got 20 things. This whole paragraph cannot be a sentence. I think it was just a revelation for people. Her writing was just so, the first sentence you were just grabbed in, I think. When I go back and read it, I just go, oh my God, and I just get chills. It's very beautifully written. It's just written in such a beautiful voice. And to think that that's Black folks, that's African-American folks, that's our food. I think now one of the things that she would be on is this whole thing with COVID-19 and African-Americans being at risk because of our health issues. The bad food that we're eating now, when we have such a rich history of just really wonderful, fresh food, vegetables, just just pages and pages of recipes with tomatoes and eggplants and all this stuff they were growing in the garden. And we're not eating that now. We don't have access to fresh food. Our weight gain, you know, and it was pretty much thin, you know, her whole life, regardless of eating all this stuff. So I think she, you know, have a lot to say about that. I think that's what she thought resonated with people. Like I said, she felt the presence of the people of Freetown. She always remembered their sacrifices and their struggles. She was a child, but she was always taken by the care that they had of one another. That's what she saw. She saw when someone would come to visit her mother's house, her mother always had biscuits and fried chicken ready to give someone and have them taken home with them. The fact that they planted orchards that would not bear fruit for 10, 15 years. So they, they were thinking about generations ahead. And the fact that they'd come out of slavery and were able to become independent and have respect and dignity in themselves and in their lifestyles, that I think that burned within her. And she recognized that she was able to put that down. And that's what all human beings relate to when they read her book. With these last few moments, that, and that response was a great segue into my final question for you, is as you live, of course, you just gain a particular type of wisdom based on your life experience, and it contributes to other people in its own way. And because her life still casts such a huge shadow over the food industry, and specifically to Black women who work in food right now, it's probably a big ask, but channeling her and her energy, what do you think she would say specifically to Black women who are working in this industry right now, knowing where we are, like you being cognizant of where we are historically and what's happening, what do you think she would have to say to us in response to our work and what we're trying to do and what we're trying to build? That's a tough one. I think she would say, remember where all of this came from. Draw upon that. I get the sense from her and my mother and Aunt Ruth that They went up north, you know, they were living in New York City and Philadelphia, living and working and trying to make their way out of the south. But I think that they were always drawn back to Virginia, drawn back to the people of Freetown. They felt that was the source of their strength, the source of their wisdom. You know, my mother, oh, my God, we called it going home once a year for a revival meeting in August. We'd have that day, that week. And the next day, she's like, oh, Nina, what are you going to wear next year for a revival meeting? That was (laughs) That to them was home. That was their fountain, their strength, their source, their memories of their childhood, the memories of their parents. So I think that she would tell our young people, our young women, to remember that, regardless of whether or not you came from the South or you have ancestors from the South, remember that, learn about that, research that, study that, and be true to the food. Be true to our folks. Be true to the food. She's kind of always like, well, fancy and mixing all this stuff up. and. 
it's so good and it's so good enough and we have such a battle to keep it fresh and clean and get all the chemicals and pesticides out of it. And I think she would certainly encourage them to keep going. The sky's the limit. Age is not a factor. It doesn't matter if you came like she and her sisters and brothers came from a tiny farm in Virginia, in the middle of nowhere, in the central mountains of Virginia. You know, she came and, you know, shook the foundations of the cooking world. Remember that she did it. You can do it. Just I think she would tell them to go forward. Always look back because you're drawing upon the strength of your ancestors and carry them forward with you. That's what she would see and that, that we have such a rich tradition. She was very interested in the people of South Carolina, the rice areas, I think what they used to call the Gullah people and the African, she was so interested in the African connections. What of our traditions were originally from Africa? What did we bring clutched in our fists on those slave ships? A few seeds here and there. What traditions did we pick up from the native people, you know, that were originally here? What did we pick up from them? What is left over? What are they still passing on? How did we meld all that with European tradition? And how was European food and thought and influenced by us and by the native people? She would want us to continue to explore that. And she just believed, and I, I mean, I still believe today that we have such a rich heritage and history to be proud of. And if we can bring that forward, it just make our thinking go into the future. Your past can haunt you. It can hold you down. It can hamstring you. Or you can draw upon it to just go forward even higher, even brighter. I think she would be very interested in our African connections and what those traditions were and how that's still influencing food today and what we're cooking in West Africa, what's being cooked in the different regions. I love it. Well, thank you so much. Thank you for asking. <laughs> Ms. Enna, you know, she kind of feels like she belongs to us because she looks like us. And so I wanted to kind of just tap into that part of the relationship at this point. And so that we can, you know, the young men and young women coming up now that will find her example in history and be challenged and moved by it. You know, I want them to feel like they have a responsibility to protect her legacy as well. And so if you don't feel connected to it, then you don't feel obligated to protect it. So I wanted people to find a new connection to her life and her story, especially if they can find it reflected in their own. So, yeah. So thank you so much for your time. You're welcome. Thank you. <laughs> we'll likely hear from me sometime in the future, maybe to follow up. Maybe after your trip to Africa, I will reconnect and we can all talk about what we figured out. Yes, because you're going to go to Ghana, too. You and your sisters, you're going to go, too. <laughs> yes, we have got to get to Ghana. Appreciate you. Thank you again. Thank you. That is all for this week's episode. Thank you to our guests for spending some time with us. And thank you for listening in and for being a part of the Flyest Click in Podcasting. If you love these conversations, be sure to download, subscribe, comment, and share. You can get further connected with the Afros and Knives community by following us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And don't forget to visit our website, afrosandknives.com and sign up for our newsletter. Afros and Knives does this work only with the financial support of our Patreon community. To become a patron, please visit patreon.com backslash afrosandknives and pledge your monthly support. We are working on expanding into video as well as offering patron-only content this year and you don't want to miss out. Until next week, may you be happy, may you be safe, may you be healthy, may you be at peace. <laughs>